Welcome to episode number two of The Wheelhouse with Jerry DePoto. I'm Aaron Goldsmith. Colin O'Keefe is attempting his best, Kevin Kremen. You know, Kevin retired, Jerry. Kevin Kremen, producer, engineer, extraordinaire for the Mariners. 35, think about this for a second, Jerry. 35 years, Kevin has been overseeing Mariners radio. The team's been around for 40 years. 35 of the 40 years, Kevin has been on the dials, and he's not coming back this year. He's going to enjoy retirement. And I did shed a tear when I found out that Kevin was retiring because Kevin was my go-to road food guy. That's, oh, absolutely. He, he is. Kevin, where, where do I be. go in X town? He would always have some good. He'd give me a pretty solid recommendation. You know, for his retirement, I gave him the cookbook for Pizzeria Bianco. I have such cookbook. Okay, it just came uh, out. It's, it's fantastic. It's on the right? shelf. Yeah, it's amazing. And uh, I wrote in the front of it on the front. You're talking about the one in Phoenix, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Correct. Uh, there's a couple locations. I think they have a sandwich shop as well, which I have not been to. Uh, but the first food recommendation Kevin ever gave me was Pizzeria Bianco. And it's turned out to be like one of my favorite restaurants anywhere in the country. I just think it's the pastas, uh, the appetizers, the pizza obviously is fantastic. And I told, I wrote in the front cover, this was the first recommendation you ever gave me. And it remains one of the most special restaurants to me because Kevin was like a dad to me, he still is. Uh, so, but I'm glad to know that among all your networking, uh, when you took over as the general manager for the Mariners, that you quickly figured out that Kevin was the go-to food source. He was the go-to food guy. You know, Pizza Bianco, you call it the best restaurant in the country. I just call it somebody trying to replicate what's going on in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we know you have a pizza oven. Yeah, that's a good spot. But I no, it's a you, great spot. I take it you've yeah. been, and you like it enough to buy the cookbook. Yeah, you know, we lived there. We lived in Phoenix. Oh, sure. Well, I worked for the Diamondbacks yeah. from winter of 05 through 2011, and, and we, we've – frequented pizza bianco long lines if you don't make a reservation you know i the we stopped going to the phoenix look this is actually a good insight for people who are coming to spring training right of who want to have a good meal my antenna are now out (laughs) that's right we stopped going to the phoenix one and we go to the one it's like uh over by camelback it's next to a trader joe's and a whole foods you can there's way more seating you can sit outside there as well and if you go if the game ends and you can get out of the booth and get in your car and pick up your wife and kids. You can get there in 30 minutes, and there's no traffic, no lines. It's fantastic. Like, how quick do you have to pick up your wife? Is this like it's driving, right. it's, slow down to five miles very, an hour? It's and very open coordinated the door? if it's a Bianco night in spring training. Yeah. Like, maybe they drive, they pick me up, and we go. Uh, but I'm glad I'm glad we're of similar mindset on uh, Bianco. Yes, sir. You're not, like, strapping them to the top. It's not an ad. We have, we have yeah. car seats that are certified. Okay. Got but it. they are on top. Whatever's quicker. Hey, this is going to be a fun uh, episode number two. Uh, Jerry, we're going to talk about a number of different things, including a couple of uh, additions to your coaching staff in your front office. And uh, there's been some good stuff going on in the fall league as well for the Mariners uh, that has wrapped up, of course. And uh, it's that time of the year, time to talk Hall of Fame as well, a little Edgar chatter. Uh, first of all, let's talk about some, uh, some new additions. It seems like, man, it seems like every team is hiring. Uh, new coaches, new front office. Maybe that's an annual thing, but it just seems like this year in particular – a lot of teams are making a lot of adjustments uh, on the field and off uh, this time of year. But uh, tell us about Jim Brower, a new assistant coach, a guy who's a journeyman, uh, big league pitcher, uh, like Dan Wilson, a former Golden Gopher. Um, tell us a little bit about him, because I know he has kind of an, it seems like an interesting uh, viewpoint on approaching pitching, it sounds like. Yeah, and, and a heck of a personality. You know, part of the reason why we brought Jim on board was not just because he was another Golden Gopher, <laughs> which which are actually, it's a fair population around big league baseball. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, Dan Wilson, Paul Molitor, Dave Winfield. Uh, it, big ah, some names. Some big names, you're right. Big names. But, uh, you know, the University of Minnesota has, has churned them out. Jim is one of them. 
and in vetting for the position, one of the things we were looking for was, you know, a slightly different skill set from what we were what we were used to with Mel Stottlemyre, someone who could effectively balance him out. And, you know, Mel is excellent in communicating with players and working through deliveries and pitch development at all strong areas for him and and Jim brought a different personality that, that perhaps reaches a different crowd and and uh, very schooled in, in the analytics and advanced scouting information and that'll be a big part of his job is is being the conduit that takes that information to our players and effectively what we're doing is taking the bench coach position which I think is a lot for one guy and we're splitting it into a field of play and then the pitcher's mound and what's happening in those areas. So Scott has another go-to in the dugout on the pitching end. And we've talked about it in this way that, that every year we've got a 25-man roster, 13 position players, 12 pitchers, or vice versa. So roughly half of your players are going to be pitchers. And for the most part, in Mariners history or in the history of most other teams, you're going to have a seven-man major league staff, and one of them is a pitching guy. So you have six coaches, you know, the, the head count, the, the ratio of coach to player for a position player is ridiculous. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, one to two. Sure. Uh, and then a pitcher, a, the pitching coach is, is one to 13, which is, uh, it's criminal that we do that to one coach and ask him to absorb so much. And in the age where information and preparation matters so much in, in getting ready to face the opponent, that's an awful lot for one guy to do, is to, is to physically work with the players in the bullpen while they're putting together, a, connecting with them emotionally and putting together a game plan. And what winds up happening in a lot of those instances is the relievers, the guys who once we bring spring training and are just sitting down there in the bullpen, they lose touch with the pitching coach or with the program because there's so much heavy lifting in other areas. So we felt like Jim was a really good accent or, or it, it augmented Mel in a really positive way. You know, when Scott was talking, uh, this was a while ago at this point, to Shannon Dreher about this potential position, he referenced somebody who was fluent in pitch effects and track man. First of all, along those lines, it sounds like Jim is the guy is the guy who is fluent in both those things and into it. Is that correct? Okay. And the into it is is for sure. Okay. Uh, you know, he's been around good organizations, smart people doing who are doing the right things, and and where he went in with a pretty good skill set. He's a very intelligent guy, and he's got a great way about him, and very confident in in the way he pushes the information forward. And that's pretty critical when you're going to try to talk big league players into throwing a slider in this situation. Sure. You better be confident when you're doing it. So I think it's probably worth kind of explaining a little bit when I think in even from a broadcast side of things when, when we say pitch FX we mean the you know the EQC tracer <laughs> or whatever the sponsorship might be that season uh when you guys talk about pitch FX we'll get to trackman in a second but I well actually are those two things similar or they're not similar too, they? they're not dissimilar okay you know they're they're all leading us to the same directions what they're doing is effectively judging the pitch quality you know, velocity, the spin rate, the break. Uh, and, and what we get now in the combination from TrackMan, from StatCast, from, from you know, PitchFX or, or the like, a lot of what PitchFX has done historically is being absorbed by TrackMan and StatCast. But they're still all valuable pieces of information in sorting through 
what this pitcher does best. And, you know, for instance, to the naked eye, Nick Vincent throws an 88 to 90 mile an hour fastball that blends with an 88 to 90 mile an hour cutter. <laughs> right. I mean, there to to the naked eye, you'd you'd be very pressed to figure out what the difference is. But the 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 hitter reacts so differently, and Nick can survive and thrive at the top of the zone, unlike some pitchers that throw 95 and up. So his fastball, the, what we'll call the effective velocity of his fastball which is a combination of his stride length, his release point, and the way his ball travels and spins at the top of the zone, all of these different metrics are pointing us in that direction. So we can identify, which in the case of Nick Vincent we did, a pitcher who can, who can effectively use Safeco Field to his advantage. If we have an outfield that can run him down, if we have a fly ball centric pitcher, which Nick is, and if that that said fastball trajectory plays much harder than the gun, the radar gun suggests, that should be a pretty com- good combination of events. And you know, really over the course of his major league career, Nick Vincent has done those things, and and they've really been magnified here with the Mariners. Is he's been terrific for us for most of the last two years, and. And that type of style, if you can identify that by looking at metrics like PitchFX, like TrackMan and StatCast, if, if you can define what, what type of spin rate is required to survive with a high fastball, what we can do to differentiate between a curveball and a slider, just based on what the numbers are telling us. You know, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable, and and you know some of our stat cast. We've got a lot of stat cast and pitch FX heroes on our staff, and and some of them really stand out, and some of them are future potentials. Guys like Dan Altavilla, Nick Rumbelo, really stand out in in these areas like pitch identification, and then it's up to guys like Jim Brower to take the information, sit with the pitcher and Mel Stottlemyre, and and effectively recraft the way they go about their business, whether it's how frequently they use a pitch, the way they sequence them, or a slight adjustment in the, in the release point to m- magnify the, the quality of the spin. Oh, you've dangled so many carrots for me to chase after right now. First of all, uh, since you mentioned spin rate, is the idea of spin rate just to not be the average either be so far below it that a hitter hasn't seen that or be so far above it that a hitter hasn't seen that either? I mean, is that the idea? Don't be in the middle. Well, it, spin rates are, are unusual. The The further above average, mm-hmm. for, for me, the better. That, sign me up. Okay. That is, it's uh, Those are the guys that generally run particularly high strikeout rates. And and in this game, the easiest way to suppress run scoring is to make them miss. Sure. And, and in, a, in an era, I believe we've gone eight, consecutive years in Major League Baseball setting all-time strikeout records. So it, uh, the more pitchers you have on a staff that can that can miss a bat, the better off you are, particularly the, the longer a game goes on. The deeper you get into a nine-inning game, the more, the, the more premium you're willing to pay uh, to the guy who misses bats. It's, that's number one. The further beneath the average or below the average spin rate you get, the greater likelihood is that you're a ground ball pitcher, uh, it's, which was kind of my thing and, and as, a, as a player, my thing. There's not so many of them anymore, but there are a lot of guys that you're going to see there. If 100, if we count 100 as average, if, they are, if we count 100 as average, they are closer to an 85 or an 88. Uh, and that, that number is more relevant or, or pushes us towards seeing that they are ground ball oriented pitchers two seamers tend to spin more 
four seamers, when you backspin a four seamer, it spins hard. And you know, and generally speaking, four seam fastballs tend to play well with curveballs that spin hard because they're now it's very tough for the hitter to differentiate between the way the ball spins and they're playing off of the same release plane. Whereas the two seam fastball that sinks, because it's not spinning as quickly, the reason why a four-seam fastball stays at the top of the zone is that the spin keeps it at its apex for a longer period of time. It almost gives the appearance like it's a riser, mm-hmm. but it's but we know that that's not physically right. possible. It's just staying on its apex for a longer period. The two-seamer that's spinning less falls off the apex and sinks. The curveball that spins hard looks like that four-seamer, and then just when the four-seamer maintains its apex, the curveball's gone. And, you know, that is... Ideally, when you're looking at combinations of pitches, that's what we're looking for. It's one of the reasons why we identified David Phelps, who can spin a fastball near the top of the zone and has a violent break on a curveball that runs off of the same plane and gives the the added feature of a cutter that he can throw that effectively moves the other way. When you think the curveball is going to go down, it takes a left-hand turn at 92 miles an hour, which has its appeals. (laughs) Sure. So is it... Is it easy just to assume then, well, Paxton's a high spin rate guy because he throws at the top of the zone and has a nasty curve, and Sepchinski's a low spin rate guy. I mean, is, is it that easy? Is it- it, sometimes yes. Okay. Sometimes yes. And and in those cases, pretty much. Uh, you know, Nick Vincent, oddly enough, and I mentioned Nick earlier, Nick is one of the highest spin rate guys in the league, and which explains why he's been able to run close to a 10 strikeouts per nine rate with an 89-mile-an-hour cutter and you know it's a it makes sense rich hill is, a, is another one who who you can sit and watch rich hill throw 88 90 mile an hour fastballs at the top of the zone and you know they barely foul him off and and, and there are so many of them around the league We've chris got young a, uh, chris young is one of them i think uh, emilio pagan is oh, one of sure. them yeah. edwin diaz is one of them they're, they're you know, Dan Altavilla is one of them. Nick Rumblow is one of them. Uh, we've we've identified these types of pitchers, and in many cases, targeted them as trade acquisitions with the idea that that skill set works for us. And you know, occasionally you're going to give up one over the fence when you pitch up in the in the zone. But in today's day and time, who doesn't? Right. Yeah. <laughs> seriously. Uh, okay. Well, to close the loop on Jim, then for a moment. I'm curious. Did you have a, a? Is there a connection that you have with Jim? I mean, how did how did that uh, come all about for him to join the Mariners? Uh, we don't. You know, I, I, myself, Scott. At the end of our careers, we played against Jim, but uh, not a great deal. Uh, Jim came to the Cleveland Indians after I left, and you know, big, strong guy with a good slider. I saw him pitch a lot in his time. I probably wrote more scouting reports on Jim Brower <laughs> than than he will ever realize. <laughs> But, uh, no, Jim Jim actually came through the Kansas City chain and later with the Cubs. He was the Chicago Cubs pitching coordinator. And I don't know a lot, but one thing I do know is that the Cubs are doing things right. Sure. And, you know, when you, when you are looking to tap into the coaches that can make a difference in your world and the type of paradigm we've set up with what we want our, our pitching, you know, Scott references it as the three-headed monster – we want to give our pitchers a, a coach-to-pitcher ratio that just works better. And when we went into looking for the, the talent in the pitching coach world, we tapped into what we think are the teams that are doing it the right way for the interviews. And the guy that stood out the most was Jim Brower. Is there, is, does this position that he is filling, does that exist elsewhere? 
Very few places. Uh, there, there aren't too many teams that have more than one pitching influence on their team. Oftentimes, the bullpen coach is more of a catching guy than a, than a pitching guy. You've got one pitching coach. We made this hire you know, just last week, and it's a, it's a move toward what we've, we're going to have three pitching guys. We're going to add another pitching guy in our bullpen role coming up here shortly. But we will be the only team in the league that we know of that's carrying three. In the time since we've made this trade, we've become aware that there are at least three other teams that are planning on carrying a, pitching co a second pitching coach in the dugout. And about 15 years ago, it became fashionable to carry two hitting coaches. Sure. And you know, when you think about it, a coach is a coach. Every, every single coach who is associated with some type of offensive player, whether it be, whether it be as a defender or as a hitter, the, the position player group is well represented among coaches. And, and uh, every position player coach has hit. So there's some right. level of hitting coach involved with each of them. And, and the one thing that none of them have ever done is that they've never pitched. And, you know, that's a pretty critical element for us is, you know, if, if we have a chance to create a competitive advantage and we're trying in so many ways, whether it's using the, the best traits of our ballpark, the best traits of the athletes on our roster, or the best traits of our pitchers, you know, why not have pitching coaches who are intuitive enough to be able to determine what is best in all of those things and then work with Manny Acta as our bench coach which is a new change but work with Manny Acta as our bench coach to coordinate or collaborate and and set up a defense that works with the pitcher in such a in a seamless way have you heard Manny whistle by the way have you heard the Manny Acta whistle I have heard Manny whistle. Have you, do you hear it from like your suite at Safeco Field <laughs> I do not hear that I do not hear that but I, I have heard Manny whistle and, and among Manny's many magical traits yeah. that is one of them yeah no we love Manny yeah just because you kind of referenced it uh, how it's become in vogue recently in recent years to have multiple hitting coaches obviously made me think of Scott Brocious right away in the, the Poto era I mean I don't know if there's a a, I like it. Yeah, I, I like, I like yeah. Yeah, the, the Depoto era. Yeah. I don't know if there's been a. Uh, I don't. Gosh, now I'm trying to run through the whole rolodex of Depoto hires. But I mean, that was. If I understand the story right, he's obviously coaching at a small school in Oregon. He's a Northwest guy, and he reaches out to you, correct, and says, "Hey, you might remember me from the World Series. Do you have a spot anywhere in your organization to coach?" And he, of course, starts in Tacoma a year as the hitting coach there. Edgar's assistant, now he'll be your third base coach. He is as likable of a guy as there is in the game and obviously knows his stuff. I mean, this has just been a, a tremendous working out to have Scott Brocious be a part of things. It really is. You know, I, I will probably about four years ago, uh, prior to my coming to the Mariners, I had, I had reached out to Scott. Uh, okay. And just basically wondering how interested would you be to get back into pro ball? I did it through his agent or his longtime agent. Did you know him? And no, really didn't know him. Had, had played against him, but had really admired what he'd done at the NCAA level. Knew enough about him as a person to really believe that it was the right element to introduce and thought it would be an interesting discussion. Uh, at that time, he wasn't really interested. He was still working through uh, getting, the, getting rid of the college itch, so to speak. And he had done such an incredible job there. And I believe that was a year that he was actually coaching Team USA, like a okay. junior team to USA, which was an honor for him. And, uh, you know, we didn't really – we didn't get too far down the road. The agent let me know that he was happy staying where he was. And, and then I think it became an easy connection for him. When I came to Seattle, he immediately reached out. And uh, now we were no longer trying to pull him to, to the – 
the Southern California end of the map. We were we were hitting his. You're in his spot. backyard. Yeah, what we call the honey hole. It's a, <laughs> uh, you know, he, uh, we're in his backyard. It's his area. Uh, he was ready to get back into pro ball. And I'll give you a little quick funny story. So Scott Brocious, Scott Service, and myself went to dinner with Edgar Martinez, and we were just going to talk hitting. This is prior to when we hired Scott as our AAA hitting coach. We were just trying to determine where he fit best, whether our philosophies lined up, and whether our personalities clicked, which is you know, otherwise known as an interview. Sure. <laughs> and uh, we went to we went to dinner at El Bistro, uh, at down at the public market here in Seattle, and we sat down at a table. and And the the group of us, we've ordered our appetizers, and I'm sitting next to Edgar, and we're we're generally having the, like the fun preamble conversation and Edgar looked up and took in a deep breath and looked around the restaurant and he said I haven't been here in a long time and I said oh, I've only been here for a couple of months I've been here 15 <laughs> times already and uh and he said he said yeah this is where I went on my first date with my wife and I said really and he said yeah I haven't been back since and I said, how in the world, what? how in the world have you been married all these years? <laughs> this was your first date spot and you've never come back a second time. That seems shocking to me. But uh, but that was the case. And that night we we all clicked. Edgar walked out of there thinking that that Scott was uh, was the right fit for us. Hopefully he decided that he needed to take Holly back yeah, to seriously. the site of their first date. And and uh, and it, it worked out great for us. Scott did a wonderful job in Tacoma. I guess the most celebrated you know, re- part of that job, I suppose, was uh, was what he did with Mike Zanino, and and the, the establishing that connection with Z, and and that's been a boon for us as well. But he has he rose to to a point last year where he was our seventh coach on the big league staff and an assistant hitting guy, and this year he's going to man third base. I know he's already practicing, given the signs. Yeah, working but, that, that uh, shoulder out a little bit. Yeah, he did it for better than a decade as a college sure. coach, so he'll, you know he'll, he'll catch on pretty quick. We'll talk about Edgar a little bit more uh, coming up in a short while. Uh, but transitioning from Jim to, uh, boy, another kind of, I think, an unprecedented position, is this fair to say? Uh, Dr. Lorena Martin, who is your new director of high performance, is this has this been done anywhere else? You know, the Toronto Blue Jays created a high performance program the, the year prior. So headed it to the 2017 season, the Blue Jays – created it but they did it at the minor league levels okay. rather than as organizationally so i believe as we sit here that we are the only team in baseball that has thus far you know gone full monty and and, and have the the high performance model for the entire organization you know i'm on record this is something that that other sports franchises around the world in other major sports ranging from NBA basketball to NFL football to English premier soccer to, you know, Australian rules football. This is the model for athlete care and management that exists in other major sports around the world. We're just following suit. Baseball's been a little slow to get there. I I, I just recently returned from not just the GM meetings, but the week prior I was in London. And we went through a sports conference with with the, the, the Leaders in Sports Performance Institute. And as a part of that conference, I was introduced and toured through a number of different English premier soccer programs, how they run their, their high-performance system, their facilities, and what they do. We established relationships with, it, with Australian rules football teams, and it is amazing what they're able to do in connecting with their athletes, keep, keeping them healthy and on the field. And, you know, I, in the world of what comes first, 
first the chicken or the egg, healthy players or high performance maintenance. I, I didn't want to take the chance that not being being first with the high performance, you know, we felt like this could really help offset the issues we've had, not just over the last year, but over the life of a baseball career. And most specifically for us, over the last two years, it's been it's been pretty heavy injury load. So hopefully Lorena can take some of that away. Obviously, her hiring comes in the shadows of what was a historic season in terms of injury for the Mariners, especially on the pitcher side of things. At what point during the season last year did you start wondering what – let me rephrase that. At what point did you think, oh, that injury is unavoidable? And at what point did you start thinking, okay, this is now getting to a point where we have to tear this thing down and figure out a new approach to how we're going to keep guys healthy? You know, it was, it was probably when we, we started, honestly, we started this back in 2016. So my first year here, and I, and I got to give props where they're due to, to Jeff Kingston, who has been a big, our assistant general manager, who has been a big advocate of the, the high performance model. Jeff is a, a, a tennis buff. He follows soccer very closely. He's in tune with what's going on in these areas around the world. And you know, I, I, oftentimes I would, I would, it would drive me crazy how often we were having conversations about how better to do things medically instead of talking about baseball players. And then it became like a drug to me. And now I'm addicted. I, really? We, we have to get better at this. And, and it became apparent through 2016 because if you remember, that wasn't a clean year for us. No from an injury perspective and and then going into 17 it really kind of hit its peak for us in spring training when we were now sitting down with different candidates or what let's call them resources who were starting to fill us in on a lot of the detail required to set up a program like this we met with pe- experts from around the world that that had gone through this in other major sport and were giving us advice so to speak up to the middle of march and and then toward the tail end of march first when we had the the we got the news on the the injury to Drew Smiley and we knew that was ominous when we knew that we were really struggling to get Hasashi Wakuma over the hump with some of the shoulder issues he was experiencing and and then shortly into the season where by the middle of May we were roughly you know we were down to the, the 12th pitcher on our on our depth chart for starters and and uh, you're calling guys up from Arkansas. Yeah, it's, it was really bad and and not only calling guys up from Arkansas. There was a I don't know if you remember this one among the the 40 pitchers we had. Someday I hope somebody will write a song about it. But <laughs> among the 40 pitchers we had, we actually had a pitcher named Tyler Cloyd, who we had for a day and a half, who had not appeared in a major league yes. game since 2013, came up. Pitched for us one night, gave up a run, uh, I, I guess scavenged a win out of it. The, that night was sent back to Tacoma, never to, to appear in a, in a Mariners uniform again for the remainder of the season. And just a couple of weeks prior, we had signed him out of the independent leagues uh, while he was rehabbing from Tommy John surgery. That's how threadbare we, we got on the pitching side. And, you know, going back to, to episode one of this podcast, we talked about Thiago Vieira and some of the, what we had done with the 40-man roster. We had to scramble the Jets. And, sure. And some of this can be solved by, by what we do, how we care for our athletes, the way we train. And, and frankly, just Lorena and some of the technologies that she can apply to players to maybe prevent injury before we get to the point that's inevitable. 
uh, it, once it becomes inevitable that now we're 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 battling against something we can't solve and we're just going to have to put our wrists out to be cuffed <laughs> and, and that's what happened last year we had, we had a team that was plenty good enough to compete for a postseason spot and and magically we were able to hold in there and if we were able to stay a little bit healthier to a lot healthier who knows what could have happened just to put that on hold for a second I want to show you this on my computer I did bookmark about midway through the season last year pitchers used the index search so that way I could always you know when we see the new guy come in, right? Well, now we're up to 27. Now we're up to 38. Uh, you, of course, tied a major league record with 40. Uh, but I, I actually did this at the end of the season uh, just for fun with Rick on the air. Kind of going through the names like Ryan Weber, right? Like, does anybody does anybody remember Ryan Weber? I remember him clearly, not, not only because virtually every day of the season you would walk into the training room and Ryan Weber was laying on the table. <laughs> That's not a good reason yeah. to be remembered. You know, and Weber, he did, if you recall, he came up, he pitched once for us. It was in Toronto. We were in dire need of someone to give us a quality outing. He pitched, I want to say, into the fourth inning of, of what yes. was a, a one-out shutout piece and getting ground ball after ground ball. Great curveball, Ryan Weber. Am I remembering uh, that right? Really good sinker. Sinker? Okay. So, I must be confusing him with somebody else. <laughs> and what do we know about guys with really good sinkers? Generally low spin rate sure. guy. But he was a waiver claim, uh, and we picked him up, and he did a wonderful job for us that day. And then all of a sudden walked up the back of the mound <laughs> and, and grabbed his arm. And it took us, no, no joke, it took us about a month medically. And this is, this is with what I think is the most cutting edge and qualified medical people that you can possibly access. It took us about a month to figure out really? actually what was wrong with Ryan because it was such a unique injury. And no one, no one on record in Major League Baseball had ever really dealt with what he was dealing with. And uh, so we, we think we solved it. And by the end of the season, he was throwing comfortably. And, and hopefully he's not experienced his last day as a Mariner. So to break down kind of the overarching role for Dr. Martin, she will, she will be working with James Clifford from a strength and conditioning standpoint? Correct. Is that right? She'll also be helping – she will be overseeing the training room? Correct. And I assume nutrition probably fits in with that somewhere else. Is there is there a fourth part of it? As well as mental skills. Mental skills, okay. So if we, if we take – the way we've qualified it is anything to do with the player's body and mind. You oh, know, all right. That's all-encompassing. Yeah, we're going to call it athlete management system. And, and Lorena is working right now on putting together a, a – a, database that'll allow us to track our players in a more efficient way. She's already had multiple lengthy conversations with Scott Service about about ways that we might be able to build playing time programs for our players that we're we're not looking, we're not watching a player run out there 20 straight days without having a little time off of his feet. Even if it's in the second half of a game that you're down or when you're on that string of 20 straight games in the east when it's sure. 94 degrees with 80 100 percent humidity you know if if we can avoid running our players into the ground she is going to be able to help point us in that direction obviously her experiences in other sport at the nba level with elite athletes or having been an athlete herself but most specifically being schooled and and i guess a master of a lot of these disciplines you know she is she is a certified strength and conditioning trainer she is a certified athletic trainer she is has a, a phd in exercise physiology a master's in sports psychology and she's a certified nutritionist 
I have dubbed her the unicorn. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Uh, and and we're we're very encouraged by what she's been able to do in just a short three weeks since she's been here this off season. Is this some this is similar to what she's doing with the Lakers, or is this is this a hybrid? It's a role? hybrid of that role. It's in in addition to the five things I just mentioned mm-hmm. that as areas of discipline and expertise for her. She's also a biostatistician and a performance analyst. So, uh, in a, in addition to all the medical areas of expertise, she she built this skill set over the course of uh, let's call it twenty years of, of educational background and. And she comes to us not only with areas of expertise in the training room and medical and on the nutrition table, in addition to sports psychology, but she's, she's a mathematician who understands how to look at the data, manage big data to lead us toward better decision making. And, you know, being able to combine those two things to us was just so appealing. And she does it as a, as a bilingual, you know, former oh, really? professional athlete who's Cuban-American and, and fits so well in our in our current setup that it's uh it was truly just tell us where to sign so how'd you find her Uh, luck now actually and again i'm going to give i'm going to give a lot of credit here to jeff kingston jeff introduced us to let's call it a headhunter uh dr mark kovacs out of atlanta georgia who runs a consulting group and this is what they do they they match we gave them the criteria for what we wanted and he gave us a list of 20 some odd people who were general matches and on paper Lorena and a couple others were were the most highly qualified we knocked it the 22 down to a list of about six we conducted interviews with those six and at the end of the interview process surfaced with Lorena and 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 then had to find a way to to sell to sell Seattle and the world of baseball because you know in, in their world this is new and you know in for Manchester or Chelsea or Arsenal or, or whoever it is around the world, the, the Lakers, the, the Seahawks, they are all advanced in these areas. And I think she really loved the challenge of coming into an industry where this was not common and being the first to grab the flag and charge up the hill. She's, she's brave, and, and we, she has our 100% support. She's connected with all of our players already and worked through ways to, to create an individualized program for them. And she's visited with all of our medical people, our coaching staff, et cetera, to talk about how the two will interact. And she will be every bit as responsible for defining, you know, how we use a player in, in, in terms of whether it's playing time or, or pushing him toward injury as any coach, trainer, doctor, or otherwise. So if she is somewhat new to the baseball side of things, how much catching up is there for her? Just, I mean, I'm just thinking of a pitcher and just the intricacies of the arm and the shoulder and everything that goes along with it. Uh, what kind of learning curve is there for her? Or be, based on her qualifications that you've referenced, is she already very well-versed in that? I think the latter. She's already very well-versed in that. I think it helps that she was she spent 10 years as a tennis pro, which is truly the only other of the major sports that we would call an overhead athlete, an overhand yeah. athlete. So the, the injuries or the fatigue issues that are common among baseball pitchers, which is the biggest issue that we deal with injury-wise, is also common at the, in, at the professional tennis level. So she's experienced that both acutely as a tennis pro and, and I guess as a, as, a, as a 
tennis coach, developer, trainer, etc. And add to that that while she doesn't have experience working for a major league baseball club, she has worked privately with a variety of baseball players, including having been on staff at UC San Diego, the University of Miami, and having worked with the Ripken Baseball Group. So she has she has worked with baseball players, just not at this level. And my guess is that when you introduce her to Felix Hernandez, it's it's probably not a lot different than the first time maybe she worked with Kobe Bryant. <laughs> just, just guess, just to right. drop a name. Well, that's 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 uh, both fascinating and also very exciting. And I know you're uh, very excited about that hire, and uh, that'll be interesting to see how that uh, manifests on the field. That's really good stuff, Jerry. Uh, transitioning a little bit to something now in the rearview mirror. Uh, but something nonetheless important, the Arizona Fall League. Eric Falia had uh, a pretty remarkable AFL. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you saw, what he did, and uh, what promise that might hold for this coming season? Uh, true breakout season. You know, Eric's been – he's done nothing but hit since the day he stepped into a Mariners uniform and was a, was a senior sign, actually a 50-year senior sign for us in the 2016 draft out of UCLA. Uh, he's he's actually a kid who came from you know roughly I lived in Newport Beach for about four years and 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 Eric was down the road I had no idea and and uh, he he went to high school not too far from where I lived and when he came into the system I knew a lot of people who knew him and and were advocates of of the person the worker and mostly just how slow his heartbeat was and when I say that you know he's able to slow the game down in a way that most players can't. And while he's been older for his level, which was a byproduct of having been a 50-year senior at UCLA, he stepped onto the field, I believe, I'm just ballparking here, I think he's hit something in the neighborhood of 330 since he's been in our organization. and Almost 340. Yeah, 337. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, Not to be exact, but it, it's 337 hitter over the course of his of his time as a pro and and he goes to the Arizona Fall League and hits 408 you know it's a, wow. it's a big number and maybe more impressively what Eric does that we love is he controls the strike zone uh, I, I don't think I'm being insulting to other players in the organization once they are around Eric but no one in our organization does it better his, the quality is of, of his at-bats, the ability to make contact, the willingness to grind counts and take walks. He's an ultra-high on-base guy. And in a lot of ways, we've talked about it. He's an older guy who's coming through playing against younger players. This year, by sending him from A-ball to the, to the Arizona Fall League, we, we pushed him. Mm-hmm. He responded. Next year, he'll play at 26 years old. We feel like it's a chance for him to move to maybe more levels. You know, And you can do the math if it's sure. maybe more. But the, the idea is it, it, he is on base, he hits, he's, he understands how to manage in a bat as well as anybody in an organization. It's not a huge power bat. It's more of a contact gaps bat. And, you know, if, if Eric can pick up that corner utility service where he can play a little bit of first base and both corner outfields, then he's going to have a big league career. And we've compared him favorably internally to a guy like Daniel Nava who came along a similar path with the Boston Red Sox. And, you know, if, if you recall, I think his first at bat in the big leagues hit a grand slam. I'm looking forward to Felia's yeah. first big league AB. <laughs> it was uh, – so, and, and similarly, just a makeup guy who came through at the right time, and, and he's doing things now to force you to notice who he is. Yeah, for rough numbers, just so people don't have to pull the page up themselves. I mean, we're talking – he's played in just about 200 career games, right? 105 walks to 64 punch-outs. And a, and a career on base, granted, two two seasons, uh, but a f- 
422. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, I, I'm going to dumb it down here and just say that's stupid. Yeah. yeah that's a, to, for a guy to be able to do that at this level of play, really, guys that do that play in the big leagues. That's just as simple as I can make it. Kyle Lewis update. I know he was in the Arizona Fall League, then was removed. Yeah, we pulled Kyle. He was having some more issue or discomfort in his in his recently repaired knee. It's not a structural issue with Kyle. He was experiencing some patellar tendonitis, which is not uncommon for a lot of athletes. But in his case, we decided that it was too too close in proximity to his his MCL ACL repair to take a chance with it. We just shut him down. So he has spent the large part of the last three weeks back in Peoria going through a pretty extensive rehab and strengthening program. And we are going to make sure that when he steps on the field, he's ready to play. It, it is, I mean, Kyle is a special talent. He has all the tools to be a star quality player. He hits, he has power, he throws, he can defend, he can run. We want to make sure that, that in, in taking care of his long term, that we don't put him back out on the field until he's ready to just run with it. And he was effective last year when he was in Modesto. He was dynamic in the brief look that we got at him in the in the Cal League postseason. He was awesome in the very brief look we had during the the fall league. Now we got to find a time where we can put all of those together and, and get through a 144 game minor league season. And we feel like that's in 2018. Talking about on-base percentage and that number from Falia, it is uh, reminiscent of a uh, season from Edgar Martinez. And Edgar is on the uh, ballot, of course, this year for the Hall of Fame. He'll have one year remaining after this. Uh, you you walked him 50% of the plate appearances that you faced him, Jerry. Which makes him only slightly north of the rest of the league, <laughs> I was facing. But, uh, my wife mentioned last night that Jim Tomey was on this All-Star ballot, who is kind of near and dear to my heart. We broke in together and... And, uh, you know, he became a much greater player than, than I ever did. But uh, awesome guy. And we started talking about the Hall of Fame. And, and uh, my, my new son-in-law, who, uh, which is uh, – he's 26 years old. He asked me – he was asking me about the, the, the players that I'd faced. And, you know, Chipper Jones, Jim Tomey on this ballot, Edgar Martinez – you know, and I started reminiscing. Like I have, I have heavily contributed to <laughs> to a lot of a, a lot careers. of Hall of Fame careers, and <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I I laughed about it last year with Mike Piazza, who I think I faced more than any other player I ever played against. But but uh, you know, just when you get the chance to face great players, it's a rush when you do it, and. You know, you get the as a relief pitcher, you don't get to see in the non thirty team league. You don't get to see the the same players as frequently mm-hmm. as a starting pitcher does. So when you start building up some history against these guys, and I didn't have a great history against Edgar, but you know, I did. Edgar was a teammate of mine, believe it or not, in uh, in San Juan, Puerto Rico, in the winter of nineteen ninety three. We played together during the the. Uh, during the winter of 1994, we played together during the player strike, and uh, he was our third baseman at the time. And he was an awesome hitter. And uh, did he have a stash? Uh, he did have a stash. Uh, it was he was uh, he was as good a teammate as you're ever going to have. And we had an awesome team that year in uh, San Juan. If I could digress for a minute, no, we, please. Yeah, we had we had Edgar's cousin Carmelo, who was a longtime big leaguer, played first base. Robbie Alomar was our second baseman. We had Ray Sanchez, longtime big leaguer, played short. Our catcher was a 19-year-old kid named Carlos Delgado. Uh, we had a DH by the name of Carlos Baerga. 
And then in the outfield, we had, for a period of time, we had Juan Gonzalez. We had a center fielder named Ryan Thompson from the from mid-'90s Mets fame. And then our left fielder was a, a guy named Trent Hubbard, Trinidad Hubbard. And I, I often go back and look at that and think, Edger is going to be in the Hall of Fame. Robbie Alomar is in the Hall of Fame. There was a period of time where Carlos Baerga was among the, the best offensive second baseman in baseball and, and another teammate of mine with the Indians. And Carlos Delgado has every chance or, or argument to be a Hall of Famer. And and uh, to have that in one place, our, our pitching wasn't great. <laughs> you know, uh, but the but we did storm the league, and, and we won that that uh, when Puerto Rico was really a, a great winter league. But Edgar was an awesome player. I loved the chance to face guys like that over time. You know, the easiest course of action for me was just to walk them because it was less embarrassing. But – you know, if I, the, he had he had a great discerning eye. I always felt like when you were facing Edgar that the easy it, he was he was more barrel to ball and feel to hit than great bat speed. And your natural reaction as a sinker baller who threw reasonably hard was that you could jam him up inside, and all you were doing was just feeding the best part of his swing. So, you know, unknowingly in the time before analytics, I was throwing right into his honey hole, and, <laughs> and he was driving it into right center and. And, you know, that was rather uncomfortable. So it's a uh, I, I actually I, I remember facing him so many times in spring training uh, in in regular season. I, I'd say total, certainly less than 20 times total. But but uh, he was one of those guys when he got in the box, you really didn't know where to go because at a time before they talked about controlling the strike zone, he was the best at it. And if, you know, Edgar, Tony Gwynn, I'll cite the, to go back and cite the, the hitters that I always felt like you were Wade Boggs. You were at the mercy of what they wanted to do in a given at bat when you just weren't as good as they were. And I don't think too many in the league were as good as they were. I was just about as far on the polar opposite end as, as you could be. But awesome player. He deserves to. And, and frankly, a great guy getting sure. to know him a little better in these last couple of years. But uh, and a quality teammate who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. His numbers speak for themselves. You know, one of the great Mariners of all time, Joe Bimel, uh, <laughs> re- referenced a great story. Because when you were talking about Edgar like that, I, one of the, the first name that came to my mind was Tony Gwynn, right? And a good piece of worthless baseball trivia, which I know if there's anybody who's as big of a fan of that as me, it's you. It's what I do. Yeah. Uh, Joe gave up Tony Gwynn's last career home run. And Joe is like honored beyond belief that he did that. And he was talking about the pitchers meeting that they held before that series facing the Padres. And, they, you know, Gwen's name comes up. And one of the pitchers says, yeah, I, I, I've tried him inside. It doesn't work. And another pitcher says, I've, I've tried him outside. I've tried him up, tried him down. The consensus, honest to goodness, in this major league pitchers meeting, hours before a game, a big league game, was to throw the ball down the middle to Tony Gwynn. Which, that is not the first time I've heard that philosophy expressed with Tony Gwynn and with another. I'll tell you a quick, funny little story. I was with the Cleveland Indians in 1993, and the New York Yankees had third baseman by the name of Wade Boggs, who had a very similar, you could throw him in, you had no shot. You throw him away, you have no shot. It was expressed to us as young players in the league at the time. I was 25 years old. Now, throw this guy down the middle, let him decide where he's going to hit it, and it's your best shot. And we went out and we started that game, uh, that game against the Yankees. Jose Mesa, who wound up 
a, for, a, a future Mariner. Mm-hmm. At the time, was a starting pitcher for us with the Cleveland Indians. It threw hard, and, and maybe for his time, exceptionally hard among starting pitchers. He went out and he had the first couple of bats against Wade Boggs, threw the ball down the middle, and always the first pitch he's going to take. So you're you're o one. He is he's going to take the first pitch, and in each instance, the second pitch he hit a line drive right back off of Jose Mesa, physically hit him. Really? Yeah, <laughs> with violent line drives. And and uh, as we're sitting in the bullpen, you're thinking, huh? I wonder if this is a great idea. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, so we. we we had a, a young right-hander who was in my rookie class by the name of Bill Wirtz. He entered the game, strike one down the middle, and the, the third pitch, he threw him a, a fastball down the gut, line drive right back off his hip. Wirtz, he was removed from the game, and, uh, and the, later on that night, Eric Plunk, who played a long, long major league career, went in the game and started throwing a bunch of curveballs. And, and after the game, our pitching coach said, Plunky. The plan was not to throw him curveballs. And he and Plunky from Riverside, California, in a way that only he could say, he said, he said, Bro, did you watch what was happening out there? <laughs> <laughs> so that was my uh, that you know, that was my throw it down the middle. It, it, when they're that good, you're in imminent danger. Let them hit it to the left or to the right. Just hope they don't hit a gap or the line. They're, those are the great hitters in the history of the game. Rod Carew, Ichiro. When, when you have that kind of bat control and that kind of barrel-to-ball skill, you know, the, the, the pitcher who's not a, a misser, they, they don't really have – you don't have a great way to get them out. And, you know, it's a helpless feeling, truly, when you're right. on the mound. And, and it's, a, it, it's funny. I would so much rather the, – the great thrills – were facing the big power hitters that had the miss in mm, their game, sure. you know, and it, because now it's on. You can just go out there and you're letting it hang out. But when you get into a thinking game with the Wade Boggs or a Tony Gwynn, you're probably going to lose. There's a reason why they have you know bronze plaques hanging on the wall in Cooperstown, you know, and the rest of us are, you know, we're doing something significantly less than celebrating every July that our induction into the Hall of Fame. I'll say Plunky's name wasn't exactly good foreshadowing to what might happen also. No. Uh, so, I, you know, I think if time permitting on this podcast going forward, I think it would be kind of fun to give us an insight into your world and the world of uh, your department in terms of uh, kind of some stats that, uh, I don't know, to some might be commonplace, but I think for most probably they're still learning a little bit about it, uh, whether that be uh, WRC plus or FIP or WAR or what have you, something other than average and walks and strikeouts in ERA. So uh, I'll let you kind of have the first stab at it, Jerry. And the goal of this is just to we want to know what you guys are looking at and why you think it's important and a definition. So uh, dealer's choice, man. Like what's uh, what what stat do you think that you want to give us a, a definition and a level of importance about? Well, I, I guess of those you mentioned and just because of where we started the conversation, talking about pitch FX and, and track man and some of the spin rates that we identify with pitchers. You know, you, you can connect that. You know, we, we'll call it – we, we want to connect everything that we're doing and from a player's scouting report, the, fl- the physical traits, the way a ball spins, you know, to, to the, the all-encompassing, the emotional, the, the resiliency of the pitcher, et cetera. But some of those we're going to do analytically. We're going to identify analytically w- with the qualities of the player. Uh, 
FIP is an easy one. You know, we, we were not particularly gifted in that area this year. You know, it, it's, not, it's not an area where we excelled. Some of that is that, as a general rule, FIP does not treat the, you know, fielding independent ERA. It does not treat the, the pitcher who is prone to the home run ball very well. Similarly, you know, one number that we look at as critically important, both in assessing a hitter and a pitcher, is batting average on balls in play. And, and I'm, I'll start with the basics, and we can get far sexier as this goes on. <laughs> but, you know, I'll leave it with th- this one for today, is batting average on balls in play. And we may view it a little differently than most teams in the league. And, you know, we have, as earlier expressed on this podcast, we have identified or targeted a lot of higher fastball zone guys. So players that excel at the top of the zone who do create spin rate, who are more fly ball centric than ground ball centric. Some of that is because we thought we had an exceptional outfield defense and we feel like we do play not only in a ballpark that accentuates the fly ball as as a a, a chance to generate an out, but in a division between Oakland and Anaheim, sure. you know, with the exception of Texas and Houston, we 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 work in a division where sixty percent of the teams are playing their games in in bigger parks. So we felt like that was a good way to identify a pitcher. And I, again, since we're just among friends, however many, you know, <laughs> yeah. we'll start tens of hundreds yeah, exactly. that are listening. If if there, if what we are identifying is the flyball strikeout pitcher who is more going to be more prone to home runs they are going to run a higher FIP they are also going to run a, a lower batting average on balls in play because some of them leave the ballpark sure. and you know as a rule the the strikeout fly ball guy is a cheaper entity to access than the than the ground ball strikeout guy which is that roughly akin to you know purchasing <laughs> I you know Pure gold in right. the market, you know, platinum. They're just they're so rare. The you know the, the strikeout ground ball guy. When you tap into that, now you're talking about the great pitchers of all time. And our general impression is the strikeout ground ball guy. In most cases, if he's not tremendously injury prone, is probably going to come from your system via the draft or international signing. Uh, or you picked him up at the A-levels in a rebuilding stage of your organization. To tap into that guy at the major league level, you are talking about an talking like Zach Britton is what uh, we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Right? We're talking about Zach Britton. We're talking about really the, the, the best pitchers in the game today. You know, sure. Clayton Kershaw excels yeah. in this area, uh, among others. And, and uh, we will look at BABIP as a, as a, a reflection in what we're looking for. If, if a pitcher is running a low BABIP, many organizations would, would effectively run away. It's believing that it's, it's not a sustainable trait to run a BABIP that low. We will look at it in a diff, through a different lens, thinking if what we are targeting are fly ball strikeout guys, they're generally going to run lower BABIPs. And I, and I guess a great case in point would be somebody like Ariel Miranda, who runs a ridiculously low BABIP, but we also understand that run prevention can sometimes be a challenge because of the, the home run rate. Somewhere in there is a, is a, is a, a nice balance, and, and it intersects for us at guys like, like – and you can even look at some of our younger pitchers. It's Andrew Moore is very similar. Uh, a lot of guys down in our bullpen are very similar in, in what we're trying to get to. So we look at that number in a, in 
a position that might be juxtaposed to the way the rest of the league looks at it. They're running away. I shouldn't say the rest, but many other teams are looking at it. They're running away from a low BABIP. We are curious as to how they got there because if, if we're right in assuming that, that these two traits run side by side, then many of our pitchers are going to have what appear to be unsustainably low BABIPs, and then lo and behold, they throw them up there again and again and again. But aren't you, just to play kind of devil's advocate there, aren't you trying to get away from a pitching staff that doesn't give up as many home runs? And with the pitching staff that gives up as many home runs, you will have a lower BABIP because that's not involved. I mean, am I, is that, does that make sense? It does make sense. Unfortunately, like I just said, and I, and I hit on that point for a reason, to access the ground ball strikeout right. guys, you have to develop them. So it, okay. it has to come your way. Yeah. Right now, truly, the, at, the, at the upper levels of our system, the one guy we have in our system that is, has already graduated to a, a cup of coffee at the big league level and had success double A or above, two guys that generate both ground balls and strikeouts are Marco Gonzalez, who we acquired last year from the Cardinals, and Max Posey, who we acquired about a year ago from the Braves, who are both generally average to, to plus in, in their ability to generate a ground ball. And they also, you know, while they are not dynamic strikeout guys, they are guys that carry strikeout rates at or above eight per nine, which okay. is, you know, for us, it's a it's it's more than acceptable trade off because you're going to see that number go down when you get to the big leagues. The great likelihood is strikeout rate will go down, fly ball rate will rise. So if it, because that's just where the league's at right now. So we're trying to find a nice balance, understanding that the great likelihood is we're not going to tap into the five years of control of Zach Britton right. as a Double A starter without trading something so significant that we're giving up now. Sure. Jerry, this is uh, this has been a lot of fun, man. Once again, episode two is in the books, and uh, we appreciate greatly appreciate your time and your insights on this, and we uh, we look forward to making this a a semi regular thing going forward. So thank you so much for sharing uh, a look from inside the general manager's office. I'm glad to do it, and I will be semi interested in doing it again. <laughs> <laughs>